The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? Let's begin. Ben Affleck, undoubtedly first thought of as an actor by most people, but the top of his IMDb profile highlights his directorial and screenwriting credits. Assuming that Mr. Affleck has a PR agent that's worth a damn, which is a pretty safe assumption, it's a sign that these are the achievements of which he's most personally proud. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. In 1980, the CIA used a fake Hollywood movie to extract six diplomats from an Iran that was reeling through political upheaval and a rash of violent anti-American sentiment. In 2012, Ben Affleck made a real Hollywood movie to extract a Best Picture win from the Academy Awards. We're talking Argo in this episode of Spies Like Us. Uh, We have here a 2012 film dealing with... uh, Real Events from 1979. It's an Oscar winner for Best Picture, and it uh, pulls uh, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing. I would nod at all of those, for sure. Uh, This is our second Best Picture film that we've covered on this podcast, the other uh, having been The Departed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It might... This... And it might be our last possibly depending on how long the podcast goes because i took a look at other spy movies that have uh won best picture and uh i came up with a very very short list and they're not exactly spy movies but maybe the french connection i know it's it's a cop movie but it does deal with an international drug smuggling ring um okay casablanca i think is solid and also i would just like to do casablanca so fuck it it's my podcast (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. And I guess I mean the main plot is the romance, but the 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 story of what's going on has to do with, you know, the resistance, les resistance. And uh I think most most likely that we might see would be the sting, uh which is definitely just a spy adjacent movie. You know, not a spy movie, but it is, you know, one of those like we talk about like there being cousins of this right. film, right? Definitely a cousin. What do you think? Plus, uh, Redford, think we did we did sneakers, and we're definitely going to have to do Spy Game at some point. So, Robert Redford, uh, we, we definitely got to nod to him a little bit. So, I wouldn't mind doing this thing. Fantastic. We also uh, got to make a note to see if we can find that uh, spy movie that has Patrick Stewart in it so that we can finish right. our... <laughs> trifecta of films starring people that have played professor x right we did james mcavoy and atomic blonde mcavoy was him in the in the what the first class series of movies and the guy that played uh alan dulles in the good shepherd was the voice of the animated professor x Oh, oh! So we definitely gotta find Patrick Stewart's spy movie. If we can, if we can, that'd be nice to just put a ring on that one. Right. <laughs> this one, uh, let's talk about this just a little bit. This uh, Best Picture uh, guy, there's a little controversy there in that uh, it didn't get Ben Affleck a, a Best Director nomination. Well, that's weird. Usually, Best Picture you got Best Director. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but oh, he wasn't even nominated. 
That's right. Oh, wow. Not even nominated. You're right that they, they, and I think they go together more like, you know, like tightly more recently than, than they have like over the course of the Academy, over the whole 92 best pictures, uh, 66 have gotten best director, but only five, including this one have gotten best picture without even getting a nomination for the director. And a lot of people thought Affleck was robbed. Uh, I'll name Tarantino amongst them just because I take take his word for it. Oh, way over the uh, Academy. Absolutely. I'll always take Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. (laughs) Always take Tarantino over the Academy for sure. He should just have his own award show. Uh, some people, you know, some of the Hollywood ga- gossip rags, you know, just trying to figure out like why, why did he get passed over? Uh, the best or most common consensus, like I could find, is that um, I think it was for him casting himself in the movie, which is kind of a weird reason to pass him over for best director. I mean, there were some people that weren't happy that he was, you know, a non-Hispanic person playing a Hispanic person. You're always going to have that yeah. contingent. Yeah, I saw that uh, in quite a few articles. He got a lot of flack for that. And that's, I mean, especially back then, but now it's even worse to not. But, you know, Mendez himself said he didn't care and he doesn't identify as Hispanic or something. Um, but he's also CIA, so I don't think he really gives a shit anyway. That's right. Mendez is actually, yeah, he's half Hispanic. And like you said, doesn't even identify himself as Hispanic. Right. But I think, I, you know, I think it was not just that, but also that uh, Affleck is considerably taller than Mendez and doesn't look anything like him. No, nothing. <laughs> and the reason I think that might have... Stuck with people is if you look at all the other actors in the movie, everyone's everyone really, really looks like the people that they're playing. Yeah, it seems like there was a lot of, and the film is even very proud of that. In the end credits, you know, they show the, you know, they show the side by side shots so that they can mm-hmm. just kind of rub it in your face and say, "Look at, look at how accurate we were." But then, right. uh, but then, you know, Ben Affleck, meh. Yeah, I don't get super excited. I mean, I don't think he's a terrible actor, but I don't get super excited when I see him. You know, not like Arkin or Goodman or Richard Kind showing up. And you're like, hey! Yeah, I've never been excited to see Ben Affleck in a film. Um, you know, I, 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 I like his directing and his writing is, is just fine. And I wish him well and everything. But... Um, I give him the benefit of the doubt here, though. Myself, just, just this, just my gut feeling is I don't think he cast himself. Now, you had been talking about his excitement about doing a CIA project, you know, that he was just kind of fanboying all over it. Well, I mean, he's been in tons of spy type of movies, and and I saw him talking about working with Mendez, and he said he was one of the best CIA agents he had ever kind of worked with, or something. So I, I think he might have just been really excited about this and was like, I'm going to be in it, you know? Yeah. I think he thoroughly enjoyed like, like doing the research and his passion for the subject matter is absolutely evident in the movie making. As far as him putting himself in there, this is, I'm just going to go with, I think it wasn't an ego thing so much as like more of a producerial 
decision mm-hmm. uh, to just make sure that the movie had like the you know as much star power to to increase its appeal and reach as as possible. I think that's why he put himself in there. Yeah, just to kind of raise the level and and gain more audience with his name. I don't think that's really an ego thing. I think he was legitimately thinking, you know, making a good business decision with that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, even with the thing, I I would say I really do think it's weird he didn't even get nominated. Um, Arkin and Cranston both uh, were on record saying that he was absolutely amazing to work with. Uh, Arkin even going so far as to say that it was like working with someone that is was doing his 20th film instead of what it really was, which was his third. Mm-hmm. And that he was like extremely knowledgeable about every aspect of movie, fa- movie making. And was just right. like laser focused on the project. I need to revisit his other two films because both of those left me a bit cold, including the town. But uh, mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'll give after watching and and really processing this one, I think I need to take another look at those. Give them give them another shot. The movie was very well received, not just uh, at the Academy, but also with audiences. Uh, the Canadians got their panties in a twist uh, early on <laughs> when it just even when it showed up in at the Toronto Film Festival before it went to. Uh, broad audiences, uh, they were really unhappy about the portrayal of Canadian involvement uh, in the thing, which is which the movie does seem to minimize. I mean, it's there. Mm-hmm. Affleck tried to mollify them. He changed the end postscript of the film. Uh, the part he added in the, that whole little bit where it really says, like, this is a story about like the great things that can be accomplished when nations work together or something like that. So, you know, he, he tried. Oh, okay. That was just kind of like a nod to them. I mean, it's not like they didn't do anything. Like, I mean, they got him the passports and facilitated going through the embassies and having safe, safe houses and got him the flights, you know, verified their identities. So yeah, not like, you know, Ex-president uh, Jimmy Carter even got involved there and issued like a like a statement that the op was actually like ninety percent Canadian and the CIA only had a very small role in it, which is oh. more in line with the Canadian story. But in the same mm-hmm. statement, he also super praised Mendez and said he was like one of the five most important and amazing CIA agents of all time, which to me is a mixed message. Like, was it you know? Does does all the accolades belong to Mendez or does it belong to the Canadians? Maybe that was kind of his like silent nod to the CIA. Right. Really being diplomatic, I guess. Well, and also in the movie, they kind of, they at the end of the movie, they're kind of saying something like, uh, like we're going to, the Canadians are going to get all the credit for this. So I think yeah. that would really piss the Canadians off, yeah. <laughs> you know, implying that uh, the the public story of record is not what actually happened. And oh yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, I mean, it's it's also just kind of baked in the cake of a politician's job. Uh, mm. Whenever your country is portrayed in entertainment media that that reflects historical events, anytime your country is not painted in 
the most favorable light, you know, you, you just got to get out in front of those cameras and bitch about it. Yeah. I'll tell you who wasn't uh, unhappy. I mean, who wasn't unhappy about the portrayal of the CIA in the film was the CIA. This film was considered like a, like a massive PR coup for them. Yeah. They actually kind of applauded it because it put them in a really nice light. Um, but this story in particular isn't the only time the CIA has ever been involved in Hollywood. Uh, I don't think it's a big secret now, especially with the Freedom of Information Act and a lot of declassifications. Um, but this kind of goes all the way back to the Cold War. Um, and, uh, you know, I watched, I think you gave me an article from Vice that had talked about CIA involvement in filmmaking. Um, but I also found like a video and a few other articles and, you know, it, we, we live in a free society and anybody could submit stories and anybody can make a film and, um, you know, going back to the cold war, you know, everybody knows about the, the red scare witch hunts, but it wasn't like there weren't foreign intelligence agencies, like dropping propaganda, and because, you know, especially with Russia during the Cold War, they were involved in a lot of propaganda that was swaying public opinion. The FBI and the CIA actually were uh, heavily involved in a lot of media publications uh, to try and counter the messaging. So when you're talking here, are you talking about their, like the, the story of the film or the story of the making of the actual film Argo, the 2012 film? Well, it's actually both. I mean, they've been consultants, and especially like this, Mendez himself was involved in a lot of the production for this film. But I mean, the CIA's actually produced films, and I think they sold the script. I watched like this kind of mini documentary about uh, what came out in the Freedom of Information Act, and, and I think they sold the script for Zero Dark Thirty to Disney. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of put them in a better light, not only were they consultants, but they've, you know, like I found like a list of stuff they were like heavily involved in or consulting on. Like, you know, there's Argo, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, like I mentioned, Homeland. The Recruit, I think, was actually something they were very happy to make because it kind of made anybody really want to join. It was kind of exciting. And it's about someone joining and going through training and I think the CIA on their YouTube channel actually has like either a video on the YouTube channel or there was like several interviews about like how realistic the, you know, the, the farm's progress of training was, you know, other than being electrocuted, I think is what they said, but uh, it's more specifically, you know, I think we talked about this post nine 11, it seemed like there was a lot of films coming out that either painted the CIA in a bad light or, you know, maybe I felt like doing some damage control, but there was also a lot making them look good. Like, hey, there's this really dark, like, community or there's a lot of dark things in this world and, you know, we have to be involved. Like, yeah, there are things that we've done in the past and we've done a lot of things to remedy to them, but, you know, there, there's a lot of big threats out there that need to be addressed. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the list that uh, you put together of of movies that the CIA has been heavily involved in uh, uh, helping to bring, uh, you know, to, to to life. I feel like I, I I know what you're talking about, absolutely about the the needle swinging toward the 
you know, oh the CIA, oh the CIA, those dirty motherfuckers, you know, and and kind of the way it kind of swings back this list when I see like Zero Dark Thirty, Homeland, Alias Twenty Four, The Sum of All Fears. These all seem to be like like that. At it feels like at a certain point, like maybe the CIA somehow, and I'm just totally guessing here, but just looking at the timeline, it feels like at some point, maybe they said like, maybe we shouldn't just be completely passive about like how we're being portrayed in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Maybe we should like, you know, field a desk of, of someone like as a liaison and and try to get out ahead and, and make sure, make sure we're not being vilified. Well, one of the vice articles I found had flat out said that the, uh, off, the Office of Public Affairs, um, they got a lot of support from them in in this list that I kind of put in together. Uh, so I think I think you might be onto something that they were really trying to help improve their image. Because fast forwarding to, to after nine eleven, when there was all the controversy of the waterboarding and the enhanced interrogation, I, I think they really needed to get active in improving uh, their public image. I think you had even suggested that uh, they might have had their. We don't we don't see this in the documentation, but had their fingers in the the, the company miniseries because there I'm thinking of you know like I'm looking at these movies. These are all works of fiction, mm-hmm. with the with the slight exception of Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, right. But that's that's an interesting case, um, which I'll talk about again in a second. But uh, you know it would be really kind of difficult to go back and retcon like some of the early cold war stuff and try to make the right. CIA look good. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the comp- the company does seem to try to do that. Yeah. And I think we talked about that when, in, in both our episodes of the company. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I just get a sneaky feeling just because of it, it was so raw and real uh, as to portraying what being an operative is like you know, and being in the field and it's like, yeah, there's this really dark part of the world and it needs to, somebody's got to be a part of, you know, as far as like national security is concerned, it's, it's really important. So yeah, we did some shady stuff that's come out, but you know, that's not the whole story. And the zero dark 30, that's an interesting one because the original script was a a work of fiction. Uh, You know, it was about a failed attempt to kill bin laden and the film was all had already started shoot well it was already into production i think they had already started shooting it a little bit when osama bin laden was actually killed <laughs> and then they just oh sudden, really <laughs> yeah they suddenly they suddenly needed a new script oh wow. <laughs> so i wonder uh, i wonder which one of those the cia was was most involved in uh, it, right. the original fictional script or the the one that uh, purports to be uh, somewhat accurate at least based on right. real events right and uh, I think we're ready to head into the briefing room and start tearing apart the tradecraft here yeah let's do it alright retinal scan complete validating security clearance clearance granted you may now enter the briefing room. I think the opening of this movie is pretty much fucking genius. Um, 
what they do is they give you a very, uh, very, I think, condensed, accurate history lesson of everything you need to know about why this shit is happening. And the, they also, they they tell this story using storyboards, which is also like a, you know, like a, a visual uh, cue to the fact that this is going to have something to do with Hollywood and movie making. Really fun. Yeah, it's a very powerful opening. And historically, it really kind of set the tone. Uh, just kind of like a, I don't know, background of what's going on historically. Uh, this this event, the hostage crisis, was kind of a long time coming. And I mean, I, I don't know how many times this is going to come back to the Dulles Brothers, but uh, it's definitely going to come everything, back a lot every, Everything comes back to the Dulles Brothers. So let's just start with uh, British Petroleum um, had an agreement with Iran for, you know, pumping oil out, but they kind of screwed over the country. So the the democratically elected, you know, I guess leader of Iran, Mossadegh, like was pissed off and he basically nationalized oil and that pissed off British Petroleum, which... Um, you know, knowing the Dulles brothers' connections to international wealth, I guess mm-hmm. is how we'll describe it. Yeah, uh, is going to get them involved. So there was a planned coup to overthrow Mossadegh and reinstate the Shah. There's actually a really famous speech by him that's super powerful. Um, and just so you know, the people of Iran did not like the Shah, and uh, you know, in, in stories, especially old stories of monarchy you get like these like really kind of twisted, selfish, pompous type of like leaders. Well, the Shah was that type of guy. And he actually was really like Machiavellian in the way that he kind of ruled and he treated the people like shit. And he was only like kind of doing whatever the U.S. told him to do. He was kind of like supposed to be a puppet for us, kind of like what we wanted out of Saddam Hussein. Um, and that pissed off a lot of the people of Iran. And more importantly, that kind of fueled the fire for a lot of the radicals. Um, And in the process of reinstating the Shah, kind of wiped a lot of the, I guess, moderates. And um, so it gave the the radical Islamic movement a lot of power. And that's what led to the revolution, the Islamic revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini. And this is kind of where we're starting at in the film. So one, you have a country of people that are really pissed off at America and you know, Middle Easterns in general, don't forget things. And, you know, Persians very much so do not forget things. And they, they were and so, you now have mobs of angry people. I just wish more Americans were aware of what the fundamental uh, complaint <laughs> is, <Right. laughs> yeah. you know, what, what pissed the Iranians off so much in the first place. And because all of the stuff is so like, you know, it's not like someone campaigned in the U S on like, Hey, if elected, I will overthrow the leader of Iran, you know, like yeah, right. it, was all, <laughs> it was all done in secret. So Americans didn't know we were doing any of this shit. And so the, right. the first signal that we as a people got was like, you know, flag burning and overrunning the embassy in this huge angry mob. Right. And and that actually led to a lot of racism in the U.S. Uh, during, uh, not only during this period, but in the 80s, uh, where uh, Persians in, in the U.S. were, like, heavily, heavily, like, uh, oppressed or, like, 
it was it was kind of dangerous to be around here during that time as an Iranian, as well as being an American in Iran. So, you know, there was a lot of anger going on. And so I think this film did a great job of showing how dangerous it would be to be an American in Tehran. Yeah, for sure. And the 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 scene with the um, attack on the embassy was very well filmed. And uh, fun note, uh, some of the ways they got this this great grainy historical feel was the uh, they they passed out a shit ton of eight millimeter cameras to the extras in the crowd, and they just said like just just shoot whatever you want, just shoot stuff. And they blended. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and they blended all that footage in with the uh, with the high definition footage, uh, which gave it a really, really great gritty historical feel. Yeah, it really looks like real footage, and I've seen comparison images of actual footage and the footage in the film, and it it, it looks pretty accurate. It definitely sets the table with the the feeling of threat and and. Um, uh, really gives you a, you know, the the correct feeling of what these six people that escape capture uh, are kind of mm-hmm. up against, like what the mood of the country is. <laughs> <laughs> they're not just they're not just six people that uh, the authorities would like to question. Um, they're six people that uh, the entire fucking country is incredibly enraged at. Right. But um, these six people actually did. There's six of them. They're all uh, legitimate, real, based on real people, each of the individuals. Uh, in the movie, we see them taking refuge at a single Canadian diplomat's house. Uh, this movie does uh, condense certain things, and then it expands on certain other things. This, right. is a, <laughs> this is a case of condensation where, you know, the movie just shows the six people escaping as a group. And go into one house. Boom. Pat. That's great. And it should be that way for the for the sake of keeping the story moving along. But mm. the reality is they didn't all escape necessarily all at the same time. They weren't all at the same house. Uh, the British and, and New Zealanders did, in fact, give them quite a bit more assistance uh, than what's reflected in the movie, which was uh, another way that the movie pissed off people overseas. Handful of notes. I'm I'm happy they have a crawl space, you know, like when someone knocks on the door and, right. and he says, okay, everyone into the crawl space. All right. That's, mm-hmm. that's cool. That's legit. But you are, le- they were all seated at like a big table. They were having like, a, I don't know, pretty much a fucking dinner party. And so wow. if anybody actually did come into the house, they're going to count a lot of more, a lot more plates and glasses than there are people. So um, minus five points on that. This actually was my worst tradecraft number three, uh, was just the dinner party. But also, in general, they kind of seemed like they were just hanging out at the house. I mean, I'm not really expecting them to pull like kind of like a Holocaust situation where they're just living in the walls all the time. But I mean, they were like they were visibly terrified for their lives you know, in a lot of the shots, but they're just kind of hanging out in the living room or in the dining room, like having like a, a, a diplomatic discussion. You know, these are all diplomats. So they're having like academic discussion about what's going on. The other situation is that as presented in the movie is that somebody at the embassy had 
put together a book with pictures of like everyone that was working there. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you know, Cranston is like, you know, calls that guy a dumbass. But the idea is that the Iranians will be able to figure out that they're missing six people. It's, it seems a little odd to me that even if the Iranians had found that book, which of course the book was shredded, but we'll get to that in a second. This is where I'm going with this. Um, that even if they had the book, you know, and they had like, how many hostages did you say they got? Like 50? In, I listened to like a couple podcasts and read up on like the actual event. I think there were 50 hostages and then there was the six that escaped. Yeah. I don't feel like, I don't feel like if I'm, you know, the Iranian Republic guard that, you know, I, I find 44 people in a book with 50 pictures I I think I I'm more likely to just think that you know records are in are not perfect, you right. know that you know these people might have been here last week and they're not here anymore. Like it 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 weirded me out a little that they were so freaked out about the fact that the Iranians are gonna put this together and figure out exactly like the faces of the six people that that escaped. Right again, <laughs> not not sure if that was true or not. But we do know that the shredding, you know, of course, when the embassy was attacked, we get everyone like busting out the hammers, killing all the hard drives, putting everything (laughs) into the shredder, you know, just choking the shredders with documents. Um, And but what the Iranians actually did do with all that shredded stuff is they had, uh, according to the CIA, it was uh, experienced and skilled carpet weavers. Uh, reassembling mm-hmm. all of those tens of thousands of, of shreds of paper to recover the documents. And in the movie, uh, we, we have them sh- uh, using little kids to do that, which also I thought was kind of weird. It, it kind of gave, uh, I don't know, just that, that one element, which I think would be super clever. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a great way to employ your kids. You know, they've got mm-hmm. nimble fingers and, you, you know, mm-hmm. you give them a task, let them go. But I felt like it kind of gave Iran kind of a more of a third world country-ish feel yeah. that I super felt comfortable with. Right. Um, but yeah, in reality, according to the CIA, it was, uh, you know, highly skilled professional carpet weavers who actually also might be kids. You know, maybe maybe kids are great right? carpet weavers. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe. Either yeah. way, I'm going with plus five points on that. I'm calling that my number three best is whether it was kids or carpet weavers or kid carpet weavers, but reassembling <laughs> that, those, that shredded stuff, that's some good yeah. tradecraft. That's some plus five points. Yeah, very diligent. Let's turn to our main character and our protagonists. We'll talk about uh, Mendez, the CIA, and the State Department. Yeah, uh, he's a exfiltration specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure a lot of this was fudged more, showing the bureaucracy. I mean, like, believe me. I, I mean, you know me well enough to know. I'm. I'm. You don't have to. You don't have to prove it to me that there's going to be an exorbitant amount of bureaucracy. But I, I had trouble believing that this guy, who's an exfiltration specialist, that probably has quite a few ops under his belt, is going to be like kind of like pushed to the side as much as he was in in the beginning. But I mean, you, you got to make an Oscar worthy movie, right? Yeah. I don't know ex- really how much real bureaucratic pushback there was against this operation. 
in reality, uh, it, it makes for great movie making. The idea here is, uh, well, I mean, he's got, he's clearly got one boss whose title is never exactly made clear. It just seems to be his direct superior. Um, that like first thing just wants him to stand down and shut up. But then he does get called in and gets teamed up with Cranston. I'm not sure. Did you get the idea Cranston was also Mendez's superior or just a fellow agent? I think that first guy might have been the director or a deputy or somebody higher up, and Cranston was kind of like his direct superior because throughout the film, he's always talking to Cranston. Okay. So I, I think Cranston's like the up the chain, passing up and down orders or approvals and denials or something. The idea with Office Guy telling at first telling Mendez to just stand down and shut up uh, is that the State Department wants to handle this themselves. But he does send Mendez along as uh, a consultant, but he's also just supposed to kind of just be there to just make sure that we can say that we sent someone. We're not actually expecting you to get involved. We just want to be able to cover our ass. But Mendez, he, he doesn't like what he hears, the ideas from uh, the State Department. Uh, I think they wanted to do teachers, and their plan was to use bicycles to get to the border. They had a few um, ideas, yeah. And and it was like in the middle of winter, and you know, like it just was a really bad idea. And and uh, Mendez voices his opinion on how bad of an idea it was, especially since the entire country hated Americans and kicked all the teachers out. Yeah, that's a classic kind of movie scene that you just got to have, like the guy that can't keep his mouth shut when he hears total bullshit. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of their ideas is also to uh, use press credentials as covers for the six people. You right. know, this being like, you know, in, so that instead of bicycling through the mountains mm. or something, you know, they could just uh, fly out and... Mendez says you can't do that. Because, like, if you do that by midnight, Peter Jennings ha- will be hanging from a noose or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, a couple things to say about that. First of all, uh, Jennings was, I didn't know this. You know how, like, some some of the people you see on TV, like like the old guys given the the anchors, you know, to you like you just grow up they're just like the old guys that tell the news and then later Uh, in life like you find out like how badass they were when they were younger and like why it is that they are like the face of abc news yeah yeah. (laughs) right this is a good reference because uh, peter jennings really did come to prominence because of his coverage of the middle east he was like massive on the middle east way before anybody else was uh remember uh in munich uh, uh we, which we covered um like he was right there in in 1972 like he even got his camera crew like really close to the athletic compound where the where the athletes were being held hostage and uh you know that super famous uh, picture of the guy like with the mask you know and the rifle mm-hmm. yeah i think that was peter jennings crew that that got that shot oh really yeah oh that's really cool mhm weirdly though I don't think Jennings was stationed in Iran in 1979. By this time, he had moved over to a London desk, and he was still covering the Middle East very heavily. 
However, I give plus spy points because we know that there are three covers that the CIA will never use. Do you know what they are? No. Uh, it's journalists, emergency oh. air, aid workers, and clergy. And there's really um, great, great reasons for that because it's it's what Mendez is implying, even though he doesn't explicitly state it. If you ever use a journalist as cover and if they ever get caught, all journalists are now on the table, you know, to get rid right. of them. And so, right. you know, you just never want to put that possible seed of distrust on journalists, emergency aid workers, and clergy because you want those people to be able to do their fucking jobs in safety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they say, well, do you have a better idea? And I love the fact that he honestly says, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in most movies, after shooting down all of the bad ideas of the harumphers, you know, they would say, do you have a better idea? And he would say, why, yes, in fact, I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? But no, right. I, I love the fact that he's just like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Which underscores the difficulty of the mission. And I like that. Yeah. But he does come up with an idea. His kid's telling him all about Battlestar Star Galactica. Star Galactica. Yeah. Yeah, the old, the old 80s one. And cute. then... Yeah, and plus five points. I love this, and it was true that you know they had worked. The CIA had worked with uh, legendary makeup artist John Chambers, played here by John Goodman in in the past. This is the guy that won the Oscar for the Planet of the Apes makeup because of Argo. John Chambers is the only Oscar winner to be portrayed in a movie that won. The Oscar for Best Picture. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> but yeah, he gives he he here's the idea, and he's like, okay, but you can't you can't build a plan around a movie that doesn't exist. Uh, you know, he says like, well, the the Iranian guard, like, yeah, they don't know shit about Hollywood, but they all have cousins selling DVDs on La Brea. Right. Which, which I thought was a good line. And also, like, I felt like that's that's legit. And, and we do see that. Like, the you know, the Iranian Guard, they're not dumb. They have people they can, they know how to use telephones. <laughs> they, they right. Have, <laughs> they have, right. you know, friends they could call or, or they could watch the television, subscribe to a, you know, Hollywood Reporter magazine and see that there is no film. And so and they have their own intelligence network. And there were a lot of Persians in America during the eighties. So I mean, and the, the late, like during the seventies and eighties. So it's, it's not like they wouldn't have somebody they could contact. So they go through and they find, um, you know, they, they find like an actual script and they super luck out. on. Well, before like, that, it yeah, was ahead, John, it, it was, it was John Goodman's character that was like, we're going to need somebody. What did he say? We need somebody with credits, uh, that can deal with classified information and make a fake movie for free. Uh huh. And, and that's, that's when we get Alan Arkin's character and, and they have a really cool meeting where, where Mendez has to sell the story to this big Hollywood producer and he's the producer's like, you want to go into a place that hates Americans that are that are looking to execute CIA agents and use their blood in their breakfast cereal, 
and you're going to use 007 to get these six people out. You know, so it's, it was kind of cute. And, and I think what really sold him on the idea, he saw the news, they were watching TV and there was like news footage of what was going on with the hostage crisis. And he was like, we're going to need to get a script. And that's, that's what segues into them going script hunting. And uh, when they find one, I mean, either they super lucked out or they were super smart, but I think the one they found is a real gem, you know? And we'll be back next week to talk more about what they do with that script, as well as discussing the tradecraft of the overall CIA operation. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on your, our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.